The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. We'll walk through Romans 8 here, the text that was just read for you. If you didn't catch the number, it's page 1122 in the Pew Bible. And the title of today's Father's Day sermon is Father God Adopts. Father God Adopts. Romans has 16 chapters. Chapter 8, of course, then is in the middle. But it is also really the high watermark for the joy and assurance of the book of Romans. And it draws on all the preceding themes. Romans 1 in verse 16 and 17 tells us the thesis of the book. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. So the point of the book is to tell us about the God who saves, the good news. But then he tells us why we need that good news at the end of chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 23. And at the end of chapter 1, he tells us you may be an irreligious person. You may say, well, I'm not very religious. I'm more secular. But you need God. You may be a very religious person who thinks that because you live well, that somehow that'll balance out in the end. But Romans 2 says, actually, you need God too. And then Romans 3.23 puts the circle around everyone and says, we're actually all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's actually the perfection we need, and we don't have it. So the need is made clear, the need of our sin. And then probably the most encouraging, clear, concise demonstration of the gospel is Romans 3, 24 through 26. It, it, it was used to save Martin Luther and many of the reformers. There we read that God sent forth his son, Jesus, as a propitiation to deal with the unrighteousness that we have accumulated, to bear the condemnation we deserve. And then Christ has taken it all, and therefore God can be just, and he can declare unrighteous people righteous because he imputes Christ's righteousness to our account. He takes our unrighteousness, put it on Christ's account. And how do we receive that? How do we get in on that? And the answer is through faith. Romans 4 is about that. It tells us about Abraham. And through faith, he relied on God's promises to provide. And Romans 5 reminds us why we all need that. Because Romans 5 tells us that Adam sinned. And in Adam, we actually all sinned too. No one can say, well, I would have been obedient. Romans 5 verse 12 says when Adam sinned, we, we all sinned. And in fact, our life has made that rather clear. And the condemnation that comes on us is told in Romans 6 verse 23. The wages of sin is death. So the condemnation for our rebellion against our Creator is to be separated from Him eternally, to get to hold on to only our own selfishness. That's not God's desire for us. So Romans 6 tells us that we can transform. Romans 7 tells us that we struggle with the law. And now Romans 8 brings it all together, all those preceding strands, and does something incredibly beautiful. Romans 8 gives us assurance. And Romans 8 gives us assurance in a way that no other chapter in Romans does. One of only two places in the Bible it does this, actually. It gives us assurance through adoption. It tells us the way you can know that your salvation is secure and settled is because God adopts. That's the title of our sermon this morning, Father God Adopts. Romans 8 is such a great chapter. When I was a kid, I remember my dad would get us in the car and he would say, hey, we're going to go out and we're going to get ice cream. But then somehow we'd end up driving by some house he lived in when he was a child. <laughs> we'd pull into that neighborhood and uh, I could tell we weren't going to be leaving anytime soon. 
Because he would look at that house, and as a kid, I didn't totally understand it, but I could tell his expression changed and something glossed over in his eyes, and I now understand he was reminiscing. And he was remembering everything about that house and what it was like. And now that I'm older and I've had children born in multiple homes, I have the same <laughs> phenomena. If I'm going to drive by a house I used to live in, I slow down and I look at it and say, oh, that, the door wasn't that color when I lived there. <laughs> and I remember all these memories of, oh, they walked here and they moved here. I want to encourage you with something today, brothers and sisters. You ought to have passages of the Bible that feel like that to you. There should be passages of the Bible that when anyone else goes to them, it's just a passage. But when you go there, you're like, oh, I used to live there. God changed me there. And really the Holy Spirit has to make that passage your passage. But can I recommend to you that Romans 8 become one of those passages? It begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. It's one of the most beautiful, assuring passages of the Bible. Look in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. That is staggering. Because Romans 5 says that Adam sinned, we sinned, and we all deserve to die. We deserve condemnation. Romans 7, Paul says, even when I sometimes want to do the right thing, I don't. Let me try to describe it in ways that we understand. Romans 5 is describing what we might call brokenness. We look, we look around and see that the world is not what it ought to be. People get cancer. People die. People have fractures of relationships. There are countries at war with other countries. There's so much evil. Everything's wrong. But Romans 7 then puts the spotlight internal and says, yeah, That includes me, though. There are actually things that happen in my own heart that I'm ashamed of. There are times I snap in anger and think, what is wrong with me? Why would I have done that? I can think horrible thoughts about other people. Romans 5 says the world is broken. Romans 7 says I am broken. And yet Romans 8 begins with, yet there's no condemnation. How? Look at how the verse continues. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is remarkable. Because condemnation is a legal decision of guilty, and if the all-seeing God is to examine me, the only proper verdict would be guilty. And yet no condemnation? Do you know why? John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, verse 17 says, for God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but so that the world through him might be saved. Verse 18 goes on to say, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever will not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son. See, the way we escape condemnation is through Jesus. In fact, in Jesus. Now, I want to focus on the adoption part, but I need to build the other verses so we understand, and and I won't get as technical as I could, but look in verse 2. We're going to keep walking through it. Paul uses the word damas. In Greek, it's the word for law. He likes to play on words. So in verse 2, he uses it in the sense of power. So I'll read it that way. Verse 2, for the power of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the power of sin and death. Well, how? How did God do that? I mean, if I'm guilty, then how did he set me free? And then verse 3 gives us the answer. For God has done 
what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Notice then that the saving life has been done entirely by God. It's all of grace. God has stepped in and done what I could not do. The law are the good commands of God. The Ten Commandments are given after he rescues them from Egypt. And the law is not broken. We are. Didn't the verse just say that? The law is weakened by the flesh. The law is good, but when you mix it with us, it only condemns. It shows our penalty, it shows sin's power, and it tells us of sin's presence. And so what hope do we have? Praise God, verse 3 continues. How did God do this? The text says, by sending his own son. In the likeness of sinful flesh. Notice likeness means Jesus came as a human, but not a sinner like us. And notice then, he condemned sin in his human body, in his incarnation. Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus lived as a human and yet never sinned. So Jesus, the only sinless human, bore the condemnation that all sinner humans, we, deserve. Freedom from condemnation is something only God can do because only God is innocent. So Jesus, the innocent, takes the place of the guilty. So verse 3 and 4 are incredible. The requirement of the law that we've all fallen short of, Jesus fulfills. And then there's this incredible turning of the tables. The law that's supposed to condemn us, Jesus then flips the script. And because he's innocent, he's able to condemn our condemnation that would have been against us. Death, Jesus defeated. Guilt, Jesus removes. Debt, Jesus pays. And don't miss who planned it. God the Father. Let me press to you this morning. Jesus did what we cannot do. So, are you still trying to do it? Jesus provided what we could not possibly perform. Have you ever received it and rested in it? Now, no condemnation is an amazing thing, but let me differentiate it so you're not confused. In your mind, think condemnation, correction, conviction. Okay? The Father still corrects the children He loves. The Spirit still convicts wayward believers, but God will never condemn. So don't self-condemn. Be convicted? Yes. Be corrected? Yes. But when you fail, don't ever think, oh, I'll be condemned. You can't. Christ was condemned. Also, when others, brothers and sisters, are not living as they ought, encourage, maybe even in the right way, correct, but never condemn, because we can't condemn. Christ was condemned. You see the difference. Conviction and correction are good gifts, but condemnation is something we will never face, praise God. And now God changes our heart. Verse 5 through 8 are very humbling. Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh, meaning the sin nature, set their minds on the things of sinfulness, the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. God changes our very nature, our very being, 
Verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh, the sin nature, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let me give you an application to make sure we're humbled as we ought to be. If you've ever had a God-pleasing desire, God alone is the reason you had it. There is no other reason. You have never desired good for good motive apart from the grace of God. He changes hearts so that you feel differently than you've ever felt. You have affections you never would have had. And verse 9 continues that out now. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God, this is amazing, dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you. Did you see that? So the Spirit dwells in you. That means Christ is in you too. Although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit who raised him from the dead dwells in you. Remarkable. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. That's assuring us that Christ will not let us decay. He will resurrect all who are his. But now that means we live differently in the present. Praise God for promises for the future, but they always have present implications, verse 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we're debtors, but not to the flesh to live according to those sinful desires. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit... By the Spirit, as our brother so well illustrated. That's the only source of power here. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I want to encourage you with what verse 13 is promising. It is promising, Christian, you can change. There is nothing you can't kill. Uh, Maybe I should say it this way. The only kind of sin that you can put to death is a forgiven sin. You see? It's only because Christ has been crucified that you can mortify, you can kill the sin that still tempts you. John Owen said it well, so be killing sin or it will be killing you. Put it to death because you can. The crucifixion of Christ was victorious and you can in very real ways taste that in your own battles. Verse 14 is actually now talking about the assurance of those who fight their sin. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. And now the text moves to adoption. We can battle against sin because we're really God's children. And now it just assures us. Look in verse 15. For you, as God's children, God's sons, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is incredible, but this is telling us. The Holy Spirit both makes us God's children and makes us aware that we are God's children. There's never been a Christian who doesn't know they're a Christian. God makes it aware to us. We cry out, Abba, Father. One of the horrible things that has happened in history that some are remembering this very weekend is that some who were once slaves that were 
freed were not told that they were freed. This has happened actually in many places throughout the emancipation. What an awful thing then to be free and to not know it and therefore not be able to experience it. Or think of parents who die and had children and wrote in their will to whom those children should go. But somehow the will was not found or not put into force. And so the children are put into foster care when they were actually intended to be with an aunt or an uncle. This text is telling us something incredible. God never misses the handoff. He never frees you without you knowing it. He makes you God's child and he makes you aware that you're God's child. You will cry out, Abba, Father. And that's not all. Verse 17, if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Some people rankle at the end of verse 17, but we really shouldn't. Notice how they're connected. If I'm Christ's fellow heir, that I receive all of God's promises, all of God's glory granted is shared with me. But that means I'm part of the family. And so, of course, I'm treated like the rest of the family is treated. This is why Christ said, if they hated me, of course they're going to hate you. But that means you're one of mine. Now, all this is possible because Jesus was condemned. Verse 3, we read that God condemns sin in the flesh in Christ. And I want to make sure we know how he did that. He did that on the cross. Jesus was a outcast when they crucified him outside the city gates. He was numbered among the transgressors, included as if he was guilty, when in fact he wasn't. He experienced death, which was what we were slated to experience. All the condemnation that we deserve, being cast out, being included with the guilty, and being crushed by the experience of death, are all experienced by Christ, who, praise God, did not remain dead, but rose victoriously. And now shares that with all who believe. Assurance through adoption. My sister and brother-in-law have been um, praying for and desiring a child for years, and it just has not come to fruition. And so they pursued adoption, and they had an incredible disappointment more than once. I think it was a year or so ago. They were at the day when they should have received the child that they had adopted, and the mother delivered the child and decided to pull out of the adoption. So the disappointment was incredibly heartbreaking, and so they kept praying again, and they had lost all the investment that they'd put into that, and they restarted back at square one. They're praying again that God will grant this desire. This is a good desire that God has given them. And so this past year, there's a woman on the other side of the country who was found herself pregnant and had a child. And she went to an abortion clinic to abort her child. And when she got to the abortion clinic, they told her that she was two days past the legal time frame in which abortion was allowed in that state. When she realized that she missed the deadline by two days, She didn't know what else to do, and so she decided to put her child up for adoption. And a couple months ago, my brother and sister-in-law received that child, and on June 30th, they will go to court to legally finish their adoption. Now, that child will grow up receiving a gift 
but probably not fully fathoming all the cost, all the pain, all the frustration, all the angst, all the prayers, indeed all of the money, all the time, all the things that were shifted around so that someone could be given life. You see, I think if we don't understand how great adoption is, we may not understand Christianity at all. Forgiveness means you may go. Adoption means you can stay. Forgiveness means your debt has been paid. Adoption means welcome to the family. See, what God has done at cost that we can't fully fathom is taken people who actually only deserve condemnation and made him his children. God has done so because God is good. And God has done so in a way that will never cause us to be separated. Sometimes those who are adopted still fear that a day of separation may come. This is why Romans 8 is here. It begins no condemnation. It ends no separation. My wife's family adopted my wife's youngest sister when she was nine, almost ten. And I was uh, dating her at the time, and so I was around the home. And I remember when her youngest sister, we found out that she was hiding all this food in her closet and under her bed. And her parents would tell her, you're allowed to eat food. We're not going to steal it from you. But her upbringing was so bad that she just thought, there's no way this is going to be true. Listen, brothers and sisters, God will keep his promise to you. You do not have to worry if you will be separated. Neither death, nor life, nor powers, nor principalities, nor height. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And Romans 8 assures us of this. J.I. Packer in the book Knowing God, which a number of you have read this last year. I hope you enjoyed the chapter on adoption. Here's what he wrote. You sum up the whole New Testament by how you understand God's fatherhood. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. Everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity will not be better than our grasp of adoption. He concludes, to be right with God, the judge is a good thing, but to be loved and cared by God the Father is a greater thing. This passage is meant to give us assurance. But I want you to know that it connects assurance with transformation. Let us not separate what God has joined together. Assurance and obedience are in the same passage without blushing. You are God's children, so be led by the Spirit of God. You are God's children, so put to death the deeds of the body. Be just as assured that God's love you, God loves you as much as you are urged to put death to sin. But this morning, perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian, and some of this maybe is confusing to you. I want to clear something up that is often confused. Because America has had um, cultural Christianity pervading our culture for a long time, there are all sorts of phrases we have that we think are in the Bible that aren't, all sorts of concepts we have that we think are biblical that aren't. Here's one of them that is not biblical. A lot of people think, well, you know, everybody's God's child. No, 
now. John 1, verse 12 and 13. For as many as received him, to them he gave the right that they would become the sons and daughters of God. The only way to be God's child is to have Christ through faith. So that means if you don't have Christ, you're orphaned and you're powerless. But God is pursuing you. God has sent his son to make you his child. So receive him. But Christian, there were three phrases here that blew my mind. I hope they blew yours. God's spirit dwells in us. Christ is in you. The spirit dwells in us three times. We read that. Let me press out what it means to have the Holy Spirit in you. All right. I want to think about it three different ways. It, It means that you have gift and stewardship. So I've been the best man in a few weddings. And that means you're in charge of the ring. (laughs) And the fear I always have is that somehow I'll lose it. And in the last wedding I was in, which was just a couple of years ago, it was a guy, he was in my youth group, actually. And then years later, he got married and asked me to stand up for him. I was in the wedding and I was standing next to him and they did the thing where, can you present the ring? And it was fun. I pretended like I lost it. We all looked for it. And then the guy in the end threw the ring and I caught it and thankfully had it and, and handed it to him. Having God's spirit is like having something invaluably precious that you're also a steward of. So it's a great value. But it's also a great power that you may or may not access. Have you ever gone on vacation and you rented a bike and you were going to be biking for miles and it was harder than you thought? But what if halfway through your trip you found out that there was a switch and the bike also was self-powered and you didn't know that? Or think of it this way as well. Have you ever been going through a really, really hard time and a few people ask you how you're doing, but you won't open up to them? And you know that particular person loves you and they care about you and they really do want to see you do well. But you just, for whatever reason, won't share what's happening with you. That means that you have assurance that you may or may not access. What Romans 8 tells us, I'll quote a commentator who makes it clear. The Spirit conquers the flesh, giving believers a new path, to conform to the will of God. But believers must not be inactive. They must put into effect the power of the Spirit if they are to experience the adoption that has been secured. So, practically, open the Bible, pray, gather with the church, tap into the vine apart from which you can do nothing. But this passage tells us about God's fatherhood, and since today is Father's Day, let me give us a couple implications, at least, that are fitting on Father's Day from this passage. Here's the first one. Father God expresses his love to his children, and so ought earthly fathers to theirs. Is it not amazing how many times God repeats to us, no, really, I love you. No, really, I won't leave you. No, really, I'll finish the work I started in you. No, really, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. No, really, he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also graciously give us all things? I've met a number of dads that said to me, you know, my dad never told me he loved me, but I just knew he did. That is a foolish plan. Tell your children you love them. God shows us that. But also the passage doesn't just say that God tells us he loves us, but that he makes residence 
in us, meaning that God is not afraid of intimacy, nor should any earthly father be. Why would we not hug, kiss, put our arm around our family, no matter how old any of us become? Second, in this passage, God actually moves us to respond in love. The Spirit compels us to cry out, Abba, Father, a term of endearment and intimacy. And so ought we to express such endearment and intimacy to our earthly fathers, regardless of how well they have or haven't been. In fact, the Bible compels us and commands us to obey when we're younger and at home and to honor when we're older and out of home, no matter how long or how far or how difficult the relationship has been. If you're younger today and you're at home living with your mom and dad, uh, a common reaction you should have to your parents is, yes, mom or dad. If you're older and your parents are now adults and you're an adult, a common question you should ask them over the phone is, how are you? If you're younger, you should be quick to tell your parents, I may not understand, but I trust you. If you're older, you should be quick to tell your parents, I may not have understand everything, but I forgive you. If you're younger, you should be quick to tell your children, I'm sorry. You may need that one when you're older, too. But when you're older, let me especially press this one. It's very important that when you're older, you still speak well of your parents. Something that's become very culturally common, almost virtuous, is for middle-aged adults to rail on their aged parents. We don't only do that in our homes, actually. Have you noticed we do that generationally? Have you heard the phrase, okay, boomer? (laughs) It's a way that generations mock preceding generations. I love Proverbs because of how picturesque it is. Listen to Proverbs 30, verse 7. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be plucked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Have your kids memorize (laughs) Memorize that one. In all seriousness, though, let us not fall in the cultural winds that think it's a passing right to bemoan everything your parents got wrong. Have the maturity to just speak well of them. Whatever age you are, thank God for them, however good or poor you think they were. God ordained them for you. And however poor you think they were, as they age... Ask them quickly, how can I serve you? This passage shows us how God loves the undeserving. It tells us that God gives us grace to free us from condemnation. Grace that changes our heart. Grace that unites us to Jesus. Grace that helps us kill sin. And grace, most importantly, that assures us in adoption. I pray you've received such grace. Let's pray together this morning. God, thank you for adopting us. And Lord, just like my niece, can't fully know what that was and how much that cost. So we can read about the cross and we can get a picture of it, but but we really can't fully grasp what it was like for the infinitely perfect Son of God who had lived for eternity past with His Father in unbroken harmony to have the weight of our sin placed on him so that he even had to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In a sense that is mysterious to us, he felt what we deserve to be cast 
out. And in a sense that is mysterious to us, he felt what we deserve to be condemned. And he tasted death so that you could adopt rebel sinners. You are a gracious Savior, Lord. And you are a good Father. Help us understand adoption. Help us understand what it means to have God as our Father, who is for us, who only disciplines in love, who won't ever be ashamed of us, who has prepared a home for us. May this passage become one that we know well. There's no condemnation. There's no separation. Because Christ has been condemned so we could be adopted. This morning, if someone's here who walked in thinking, well, I don't understand this stuff and maybe we're all God's children, may today be the day they actually do become God's child because they repent and believe in Jesus. Give them the faith to do that. And Lord, let us, as your children, be led by the Spirit of God who dwells in us. And let us be tender to him. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.